If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait patiently for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And now turn over in your New Testaments to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Nobody likes to wait, and yet the Christian life is a life of waiting. I want to know if there's anything that can help me wait with patience. And the Bible answers, yes, it's the grace of hope. Hope is the the patience stretcher. Don't you sometimes wish you could have a stretcher of your patience? That's what hope is. It enables us to wait a while longer, even all of our lives, because of the good things that our Savior has won for us and that are coming for us. So we defined hope as that confident expectation of future good. And we're studying the motivating power of hope. It's the great motivator, and we've seen its motivation in different areas of the Christian life. We've seen hope living Hope purifying, hope persevering, and now this morning, hope waiting. I invite you to open to Romans chapter 8, the passage that was read for us in verse 22. The apostle Paul says, this is something we know. Um, 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. From what I'm told, that's not a pleasant thing. And so we want to know then why. Why is creation groaning? Well, it's suffering. And that not because of the fault of itself, but rather because of man's sin and curse. When Adam fell, not only was he and his posterity, us, cursed, but his environment was cursed as well. The thorns, the thistles that made life difficult for Adam as he worked. The whole creation was subjected to frustration and to the bondage and bondage to decay. And that includes everything that's wrong in the natural order from destructive weather, storms, droughts, uh, killing diseases, pests, plagues. I suppose we could throw COVID-19 right in there as well. Everything that frustrates and holds back nature from its full created potential for good. So nature is here personified as if it had a voice to groan as it's suffering and as if it had a mind to know that this suffering is only temporary and will not last forever. That God has plans for this world that reach beyond the present order of things for creation. When at last it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And it will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. When Jesus returns and makes all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. With not a trace of the curse remaining. What will that look like for creation? Well, millions of times better than what it looks like now. The book of Revelation stretches our imaginations beyond anything we know. It it tells of the tree of life growing on both sides of the river of life. And that this tree of life is bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, that's a fruitfulness we've never seen yet. My apple trees don't do that. Do yours? No, but that's coming. Such fruitfulness as we've never seen. And Revelation 22, 2 goes on to say, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Those things we just raked up and and discarded, got rid of. They will have healing properties, and not just for a headache, but for the healing of the nations. Whatever that is, it beggars the imagination, doesn't it? That's what's waiting for the creation. And it can't wait for that day. Yet it must wait. And so it groans as it waits in eager expectation for that hope that is set before it. So it groans not only because of suffering presently, because of the curse, but it groans because of its intense desire and longing for the new order to come. That's how it's waiting, like a thoroughbred racehorse inside the starting gate of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, The attendants have shoved him into the the starting gate and slammed the door behind him. What's he doing in there? 
Well, he's waiting. He's waiting. But don't think for a moment he's lying down and, and chewing on a carrot. No. He's snorting. He's pawing with every sinew of every muscle tense. And he's just waiting for that gate in front of him to spring open and free him to run his race. That's how he's waiting. With eager anticipation. Eager expectation. And then verse 23 tells us here in Romans 8 that creation's not alone in its waiting. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too groan inwardly as we wait, expect eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we, we know about our future hope and what's coming for us, that our present spiritual and physical problems are only temporary and will not last, that when Christ returns, he will make all things new. This will be the full redemption that the Bible speaks of. Even there in Psalm 130 that we had read, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is full redemption. And how will Christ Free us from the curse. Oh, Christ uh, redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And so we're looking forward to that. Uh, curse being removed and only pure blessing for both body and soul. Our lowly bodies made like Christ's glorious resurrection body. That beggars the, the imagination. What will that be like? No sickness, no pain. No suffering, no death, no decay, only ever new and freshness of health. And then our spiritual life, not just our physical life, but our spiritual life that we now enjoy is to be better by far. Right now, we're no longer dead to sin. We're now alive to God, the most important one in all the universe. By the Spirit, we've been wakened up to that glorious reality of God. We've been brought into relationship with him through the spirit, giving us a new heart, a new new mind, new affections, a new will. The spirit dwelling in us and maintaining fellowship then, whereby we have fellowship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, he's teaching us, working in us, producing the fruit of the spirit, every grace of faith, hope, and love. This is what we're enjoying right now. The life of joys unspeakable and full of glory. And yet we're told that this is just the first fruits of the Spirit. Just the first fruits, verse 23 says. First fruits point to the full harvest that's to follow. An Israelite farmer went into his field at harvest time and he, he just brought out a few armloads of, of stalks of grain, and they gathered together and celebrated as the people of God, that God had blessed their fields another year with a, an abundant harvest, and that there was a whole field waiting out there to be brought in. That, that what we have in our arms here is just a millionth of the full harvest that's coming. Now, that's our present Christian life. 
That's this life in the spirit now with all of its love, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit and sweet communion with God. It's just the first fruits of the full harvest. It's an appetizer. It's just a taste of that eternal feast that will be ours as to our spiritual life, the full redemption when Jesus comes a million times better. Can you imagine what that will be? Worship, what worship will be like if, if this is just the, 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 the first fruits of the Spirit. Well, that's the hope that's set before us in the gospel of Jesus. That's what Jesus won for us and that is sure to come. And so he says here at the end of this passage that we, we read in verses 24 and 25, it, it was in this hope that we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, just what we've been talking about, the fullness of salvation, the full redemption, well, then we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. So this hope, it, it motivates us to wait. It, it motivates us to wait eagerly. And it motivates us to wait patiently. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. And so the Christian is something of a, of a walking par- paradox, isn't he? As he's waiting for that future hope. Uh, we groan inwardly because we're waiting eagerly. We're eagerly waiting. No nonchalant wait. Eagerness that causes us to groan on the inside with such longings to see it fulfilled like a racehorse. But then verse 25 says, we wait patiently. For if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So here's the Christian. He's waiting eagerly, and yet he's waiting patiently. I I, I dare say you won't find that uh, everywhere. But you find it in the Christian. Perhaps we could liken it to the familiar scene at the holidays over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. And the only trouble is, is that grandmother lives five states away. And so you're barely out of the driveway and Billy wants to know, are we there yet, Dad? No, son. No, we've got a long way to go yet. So you go ahead and watch your movie. Okay, Daddy. And you'll tell me when we're there, right? Yes, sure thing, son. And just 30 minutes later, are we there yet, Dad? Oh, no, son. Okay, Daddy, just don't want you to miss your turn. Asking often shows how eager he is to be at grandmother's house. But not complaining shows he's waiting patiently to get there. And so with us, the certain joys to be experienced make us wait with both eagerness to be there. And patience, however long the Lord requires. So we're considering, how does hope give us patience to wait for the promise of God to be realized? Between the promise and the fulfillment, there's often a long time to wait. And we're being told that hope can help us wait. How how does that work? Well, we are waiting, aren't we? All of us are waiting for, for something. We're waiting for COVID-19 to be over and to get back to life as normal. 
We're waiting for the next four years to be over with. We're waiting for all the wars and injustices to cease. We're waiting for the inner battle with sin right here to be over forever. We're waiting for sufferings to be forgotten and replaced with pure, interrupted delights. We're waiting for promised hope to be fulfilled, to be realized. And hope is the grace that can help us wait with patience. Last week, we considered Abraham, uh, who had to wait patiently, didn't he, for a son, for a promised land, and for that seed who would bring blessing to all the nations, even to us, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He had to wait long. Now, consider this morning David. As a young lad, David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. Oh, but he had to wait a long time before he was sitting on any throne with a crown on his head. He had been anointed, but, oh, a long wait followed. And a wait in which he was suffering persecution from Saul, running like a partridge for ten of the best years of his life, hiding in the deserts and in foreign lands. He had to wait for his enemy Saul to be removed by God himself, even though Some impatient men around him would have gladly removed him with the thrust of a spear when they had the opportunity. David didn't want to enter into his kingdom with blood on his hands and conscience, knowing that he had killed the Lord's anointed, so he would wait for the Lord to remove him. And even after two tribes finally acknowledged him as his king, as its king, that he'd have to wait another seven years for all twelve tribes to crown him king. David also knew what it was to wait under the dark hand of God's disciplining hand for his own sins. That even though there was forgiveness, there were enduring consequences, long consequences to suffer in his family. He had to wait. Even during his son Absalom's rebellion, David waited what seemed like forever to learn the outcome. And it's this David... David, who had the doctor's degree in in waiting, who has valuable counsel for us, who too must wait. And he tells us that the needed ingredient for waiting is hope. Psalm 33 and verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Do you have some waiting to do, Christian? To see that promise fulfilled? Hope will help you wait. Because hope knows that the promised good from God is certain and it's worth waiting for. So we wait in hope for the Lord. Micah said the same thing as he saw the judgment of God falling upon the nation of Israel. He opens chapter 7. What misery is mine. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. You, You think it's bad in our country now? Listen to Micah. As he cries to God about Israel, this this peculiarly blessed nation that God took for himself. Not one upright man remains. The wicked are triumphing in wealth and power, conspiring together, oppressing the poor. God was now visiting that nation in judgment, giving them over to their wicked desires 
And nothing that Micah saw with his eyes encouraged him to wait for the promised good that God had made toward Israel. There wasn't anything encouraging. And yet he says in chapter 7, verse 7, but as for me, though all of that's true that I see, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Micah waits in hope in the darkest times in which he lived. And then the Apostle Paul in our text, Romans 8.25, if we hope for that which we do not yet have, we wait for it. We wait for it patiently. So hope, the hope is so valuable, so certain that it enables us to wait. And not grinding our teeth, not chafing against this yoke, but wait for it patiently. That's the power of hope. None of these graces are natural, folks. No, we don't wait patiently. We wait chafing, grinding our teeth. But, but there is a grace from God called hope that enables us to wait patiently. It's supernatural. Just as faith and love and humility. The power of hope. Now, this waiting for the promises often takes place in the midst of the greatest of affliction, mistreatment, persecution. And the greater the suffering, the more hope we need. But there's more than enough in the Christian's hope to enable us to wait patiently for it, come what may. Uh, I've shared this before, but I love it so much I'm going to share it again. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, tells us how our hope of heaven should keep us patient as we wait, even in the darkest trials, even in affliction and suffering. Newton says, suppose a man, of course he lived in England, and so you Englishmen will uh, understand the geography. Suppose a man was going to York. It's a real place, isn't it, Ollie? Yeah. Suppose a man was going to York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which means that he had to walk the last mile of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Well, dear Christian, We are on our way to receiving an amazing inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, reserved in heaven for us. And if on the way to such riches and glory we should suffer afflictions that seem to drag on and on, we should focus our mind on what it is that we're going to receive and how long that will last. And so our hope will help us to wait patiently as we journey on knowing that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a far greater hope that far outweighs them all. Hope keeps us patient as we wait, even in trials and afflictions. Paul says it in Romans 12 too, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Ours is a joyful hope. More on that next week, Lord willing. And if I'm joyful in hope, then I'll be patient in affliction. I'm so happy at what's coming 
that I can afford to wait. I can afford to wait patiently through whatever afflictions I meet. Oh, but my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Are you kidding me? On his way to receive an estate. And he's belly aching because he has to walk the last mile of the way. So what if it takes an extra 20 minutes and a little sweat? If what he's going to receive is so great, is there no patience for this? And should those going to inherit in the everlasting kingdom of eternal pleasures not be willing to wade through a few trials along the way? Samuel Rutherford said it in his hymn, It were a well-spent journey those seven deaths lay between. Now, thankfully, we only need to die once to get home to heaven. And that maybe not even once if Jesus should return before that. But he says, it were a well-spent journey if you had to die seven times to get there. The joyful hope of eternal life helps us wait patiently in affliction. So, so here's something of a test for our hope. We're, we're studying hope. We're getting closer to the end of it. And, and, and here's a test for our hope. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So as goes our hope, so goes our patience. So our patience becomes a barometer, a, 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 a measurement of our hope. So if you know how your hope's doing, check your patience. Are you willing to wait? Well, then hope, hope has some strength, some power to it. Not willing to wait? Oh, it reveals a sick hope. Are you willing to wait? The test of hope. In his Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes, Then the interpreter took Christian into a little room where two children were seated, each in his own chair. The name of the older was Passion. The name of the other was Patience. Obviously, Passion was not at all content, while Patience was very quiet. Why is Passion so restless, asked Christian. Oh, their governess wants them to wait for their best things until next year. But Passion wants all of his best things now, while Patience is willing to wait. And then one came to Passion and poured out at his feet a bag of treasures, which he quickly gathered into his arms and with great joy. He laughed loudly and made fun of Patience. But soon he had wasted everything he had received and had nothing left but an empty bag. Explain this matter more fully, Christian said. Interpreter says, passion represents men of this world. Patience represents those who are of the next world. Men of this world have all their rewards in this life. They cannot wait. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Carries more weight with them than all the promises in the Bible. But they soon go through what they have. And at the end of life, they have nothing at all. Oh, now I see, said Christian, that patience has the better wisdom for many reasons. First, he waits for the best things. Second, he will enjoy the glory of his rewards when the, when the other has nothing but rags. Yes, said interpreter, and you may add this also. The glory of the next world will never pass away or wear out. But the glories of this life are soon gone. 
Therefore, it's said of a certain rich man, in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Christian said, then I judge it's best not to covet the things of this world, but to wait for the good things to come. You speak the truth, said interpreter. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. But present things are so close to our fleshly appetites and eternal things so distant that we're apt to yield to our carnal desires rather than wait for the satisfaction of the eternal. So John Bunyan, there's the lesson. Passion wants all his good things now. Patience, willing to wait. So what makes a man willing to wait? If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hope is the key. Hope's what the Hebrew Christians were commended for in Hebrews 10.34. Their response to persecution and loss early on in their Christian life. The writer says to them, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Now, if you saw that, wouldn't you want to know more about that? That's not natural. Nobody likes to see somebody make off with their stuff wrongfully. But, but, but you Christians there, you, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And he goes on to say, because you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. Better and lasting possessions. They, they lost their temporal stuff, but they had the better and eternal stuff. You can't ultimately cheat the believer. You can take all he has here, but his treasures are already laid up there. Where moth and rust do not corrupt. And stock markets don't corrupt. And thieves can't break through and steal. But those things are so distant, so far out of sight, that most men neither seek nor care about them. They're like imaginary things. Oh, here, here, this is the stuff that's real, you see. So what brings those distant things near and makes them real for the Christian? The grace of hope. The confident expectation of that future good. There is a land that is better than day. A land, there is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. And what faith sees, hope expects to receive. And so makes us willing to wait patiently for it because of the treasures that that future good is for us. All that Christ has purchased for us. So that inheritance that we, brothers and sisters, are going to receive is so vastly superior to anything here that we're willing to do without some of these good things because we're confident our best things are, are better, eternal, and coming. Do you see how valuable hope is to the Christian life to make us wait eagerly and yet patiently? 
I don't know about you, but I need more of that in my life. So how does hope grow? How does hope increase? Hope is a grace of God infused into the heart of every believer by the Holy Spirit. But it's also our responsibility for every one of these graces to grow in these graces. To nurture and feed them. Do you know that hope has a voracious appetite for just one thing? One thing. The word of God. This is what hope feeds on. It's hope's only diet. And the word of God received by faith makes hope grow stronger and stronger as it feasts upon the word of God. Listen to David, who needed to wait and lived on hope. David, how did you keep hope alive in the darkest of times? We heard him crying out of the depths I cry to you. Psalm 130, verse 5. Hear me, Lord. Listen to me. Turn your ear to me. Seems like you're not listening. You're not answering. He's in the depths. Hope is teetering. If left to itself, it would starve and die. But what does David say? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. In his word, I put my hope. He tells us later in Psalm 119, 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. Even when there was nothing to feed hope in his circumstances, David's hope lives on because it was feeding upon your word, O God. Uh, Your word that tells me about you and all that you are and do for me. That you're a sun and a shield. That that you give grace and glory. That that you will not withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. That's some stuff that, that, that my hope can feed on. And so I've put my hope in your word. Now I could multiply texts from David himself, from Jeremiah, from Job, from Luke, from Paul, the writer to the Hebrews. But they all say the same thing. Hope feeds on the word of God, on the promises of him who cannot lie. How do you know that there's a land that is fairer than day and that one day you will be there? How do you know that you have better and lasting possessions, a treasure in heaven? How do you know that glory awaiting you there far outweighs all suffering here? Because God said so. Thus saith the Lord. It's the food for hope. Where do you go to meet up with this Jesus who is our hope? You meet him in the scriptures. Where do you learn of this unfailing love and faithfulness of God and full redemption that he has for you in Christ? It's all here in God's word. So let this encourage you, brother and sister. The one thing that hope feeds on just happens to be a superfood for hope. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, hope devours it and grows strong. Hope has no appetite for anything else. No word from God, no hope in God. Word from God, Great hope, 
in God. So what is it that your hope has been having to survive on these days? How often are you feeding it? I know this. I know that every day your five senses have been fed with multitudes of earthly things to satisfy those five senses. Gifts of God, but the stuff that doesn't last. How often is your hope being fed on the eternal things, the better and lasting possessions promised by God in his word? If we would be a people overflowing with hope in this hopeless world, we must be a people of the word of God, a people soaking in the promises of God. If you would never be caught without hope, then never be caught without a promise. There are promises in the book that match every single need that you have here in this life. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Which is to say that there's a key of promise to unlock every prison door of despair and discouragement that you can face in this world. You remember Hopeful and Christian in Giant Despair's dungeon. And they lay there for three days and are thinking about taking their own lives. Things are so bad. They're scared. They're they're about giving up hope. And then Christian reaches into his bosom and says, oh, a key, the key of promise. Well, take it out, says hope, hopeful. Take it out. And he did. And it opened the door to the dungeon and he was set free from his discouragement and despair. And, and there is a key of promise that unlocks every prison door that, that would lock you up in discouragement and despair. You've seen the janitor with his key ring full of keys. Are you adding keys to your ring? Keys of promise that you've hidden in your heart. And you have memorized them. And you have meditated on them. And they're there. You've lived upon them. And you know they're good. Are you adding to the ring? Have you added any this this COVID thing? Have, have you added any promises to the ring that you carry around to get you out of darkness and despair? The Lord Jesus did. And he pulled them out. And he used them in each situation. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Precious thing to know that, isn't it? God will not leave us or forsake us. Jesus had his ring full, and he lived upon the promise of his Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul often found himself in situations that were hopeless from a worldly point of view, and yet his hope lived on. He too is someone that I want to listen to. If anybody else had a, an honorary doctorate degree in, in waiting, it was the Apostle Paul. Just look at the lists of things he had to wait through, suffering, affliction. Here's what he tells us. Here's his counsel, Romans 15:4. Everything that was written in the past, and at this point it was mainly the Old Testament and maybe a few uh, gospel fragments, everything that was written in the past was written, written to teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. They wrote it, 
But they wrote it and God saw to it that it's been preserved. So you've got it in your Bible that you might have hope. Everything. And if that's true of the Old Testament, it's only all the more true of the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of so many of those Old Testament promises. That everything written here, brother and sister, was written so that you might have hope. And that's what Paul found it to be for him, and he's, he's, he's commending it to us for the same purpose. So, I've got a whole Bible full of promises. I'm good, John. I've got the, I've got the stuff of hope. Oh, but, but food in the hand does not operate the same way that food in the stomach does, does it? No, food's got to get from the hand into the stomach to do you any good. And, and this whole Bible full of hope-filled scriptures will do you no good unless you get it inside. And, and we take it inside by hearing it preached, by reading it, by memorizing it. And then we digest it by meditating on it and and thinking it over and mulling over it and over it to see how it applies to me and what Christ is for me today. I'm, I'm digesting it. And then I'm never done with it until I've prayed over it. Why do we need to? Are you praying for more hope? We've been on hope for a month now. Has the importance of this grace caused you to to pray for it, for more measures of of hope? Um, Ten verses later, Paul gives his prayer-filled benediction for the Roman church. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to pray to the God of hope. Well, because there's no hope but what comes from him. So, so we've got to come to him for it. Yes, we come to his word. That's, we must do that too. We must know the promises if we would be filled with the joy and peace and hope of those promises. But we must know that we could have this book and be alone on an island forever. Just this book and me. And apart from the spirit of God, it would not profit me. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. The Word and the Spirit. The lessons and the teacher. And only He can teach us these things in a way that will inspire hope in us. In a way that will purify ourselves, that will persevere to the end, and will wait patiently, even though eagerly, until God's time to fulfill all of his precious promises to us. That's how Paul prays for the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Maybe you didn't even know you had eyes in your heart. Paul prays, I pray that the the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Well, your heart includes your mind. And and, and that is the eye of the soul. That's the eye of the, the heart. And so Paul prays for the eyes of your heart to be 
enlightened. Maybe you didn't know that, that, that there's a difference between reading the words in the Bible on your own and reading the same words with the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference. Job would liken it to the difference between having heard of God and now having seen him with his own eyes. It's it's the difference of having heard about God and having seen him for ourselves. It's the difference between somebody explaining to you what a strawberry tastes like and you taking a strawberry and eating it. Oh, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the hope to which he's called you. It is so good. It is so great that it takes the Holy Spirit himself to enlighten us to it in such a way that our hope will give us patience to wait. May God do that for us, brothers and sisters. What a God of hope. He wants us ever rejoicing in hope. He wants us ever resting in hope. He wants us overflowing in hope. And he's given us both his word and his spirit, that it might be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we came into this world under the curse in Adam, and it was only by you becoming a curse for us that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. So we thank you. We thank you, Father, for for giving us your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you submitted to the curse of the cross and took the damnation we had coming. And by that glorious redemption, you've purchased for us an eternal life. And, And already now we have the first fruits of it, the Spirit of God in our hearts. And oh, how we thank you for that. We would not belittle the day of small things. It's no small thing to be alive and no longer dead in sin. It's, it's, a, it's no small thing to be on the highway to heaven with the Spirit of God, the guarantee in our hearts. Oh, but you have made us thirsty, Holy Spirit. You have made us to thirst for something more than first fruits, uh, for the harvest itself. And it's, it's because we, we've tasted that, that you are so gracious that, that we are eager. And yet we thank you that you would teach us to wait patiently. So, so strengthen our hope. Lord, give us in this coming year to dedicate ourselves to this book uh, that was written that we might have hope. Uh, that, that people living hopeless lives around us might want to know the reason for the hope that is in us and that we might be able to tell them with all humility and respect. It's, it's Jesus Christ and what he has done and is for us now and is going to do for us. So we pray it in Jesus' name for his glory, for our good. Amen.